0: Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by one of my academic friends, a man I am pleased to call a fellow postmodern conservative, which is the stock and trade here at the American Cinema Foundation, CJ Wolf. Chris, thank you very much for joining me. It was your idea to talk about Die Hard as a Christmas movie, to talk about redemption in the story and why it's an all-American thing this is exactly the right moment. And looking over your notes and talking to you about this, I realized that you are exactly the right person to talk to about this. So it's quite serendipitous. Thanks a lot for bringing this to me and joining me on the podcast. And of course, please introduce yourself for our audience. It's your first podcast with us, strangely enough.
1: Yes, yes. Thank you, Titus. It is a delight to come on the podcast with you. I've uh, been listening to some of these over the years and immediately after our good mutual friend Peter Lawler passed away I saw that you began doing some of these postmodern conservative podcasts and other podcasts and I thought that that was terrific and you seem to be carrying the torch of us fans of Peter Lawler and fans of Tocqueville and Walker Percy and all these great authors that our friend Peter introduced us to and we certainly miss Peter on this Christmas, and, you know, all the time I miss Peter. So it's great It's great to be back amongst the postmodern conservative friends. Now, my background is that I am a political philosophy teacher at University of St. Thomas in Houston. I also teach some constitutional law topics. My background is that I went to University of Dallas, you know, studied with Tom West, and also kind of got a background in the tradition of the classics there. And I was a philosophy major, actually. And then in graduate school, I went to Claremont, where I had the pleasure of studying with some great professors out there. Charles Kessler was my dissertation advisor. I wrote my dissertation on Alistair McIntyre after virtue and all that. And so I, I am just glad to be teaching and writing every once in a while. And it's a joy to be here on Christmas, a time of miracles, as they say in Die Hard. Yes, Um. indeed.
0: Uh, I am also every Christmas with Peter on my mind because Peter Lawler wrote about Christmas and Christmas movies and we will try to speak about this in his spirit. Although I have to say I don't know that he ever wrote much about Die Hard, which you can also take as an act of generosity since he left some things for us to do. This has become a meme in recent years, Christmas movies and this Die Hard the Christmas movie it's such a joke because of all the violence and i suppose it's really a joke because people have a lot of uncertainty as to whether there is such a thing as a christmas movie or what that should be the suggestion seems to be that christmas movies are hokey and old and they just don't match with a sarcastic meme culture with the world of the internet they're pre digital goodbye christmas hello well whatever it is that we have in this world of memes and I think there's a lot of nostalgia involved in this sort of joking. There's a pronounced sense that maybe we're missing something. Something in our experience that we do not have non-sarcastic way of talking about. Indeed, on the internet, Christmas, The Time of Miracles would be a matter of cringe. That's the way it is now. It's hard to fight it. And indeed, it's very much relevant to our story. Die Hard is a strange kind of Christmas movie because it's Christmas in California. And how Christmas is that? Hard to say because there's a future meeting the past, the end of Cold War America, the beginning of this new financial economy America, strange things happening to the family, and so it's not at all clear what Christmas will be like. And indeed, because Die Hard has a lot of criticism to level at so many institutions in America, in government, in society, and that's not very Christmassy either, it would seem. But on the other hand, if we've learned anything from American movies like It's a Wonderful Life, it's pretty depressive up until the last reel, as we used to say in the business. <laughs> there is a lot to complain about in order for us to realize what the gifts are. Somehow there's a connection between terror and relief. Now, all that said, you're the first person who talked to me about the issue of redemption. So, how about we get to the conversation of the Christmas diehard?
1: Well, I think that you've done a great job of introducing it, by bringing up the fact that this is a joke and a meme about Die Hard being a Christmas movie. Probably the only other big joke about Christmas movies has to do with Hallmark movies. These very, very much low-budget, low-plot, feel-good stories that mainly women like. And the reason that this joke continues and it gets pressed so hard is because especially American men like this movie so much and the girls like Hallmark movies at Christmas so much. And because there is a joke and something funny about it, I agree. Peter, if he had just lived another year or two, this debate would have come up and he probably would have weighed in on it. And so I think we're continuing a conversation that he would have enjoyed talking about. I agree that we should talk about redemption. That is part of what attracts people about this movie. And in fact, I think people like watching Die Hard more than they like watching It's a Wonderful Life because there only is that very, very brief part of that movie that people like. (laughs) (laughs) As As you point out, the rest of it, just in talking to other people about that movie, it just depresses them. And it's hard to watch that movie. But people like to watch Die Hard. There's something that connects with them there that gets them in the Christmas spirit. In some ways, it's less of a chore than watching It's a Wonderful Life. But I was interested to hear what your thought was about the lessons of Peter Lawler, perhaps, on the theme of redemption and Die Hard.
0: Well, Peter always said that to be postmodern conservative is to say that some things are getting better, some things are getting worse, and it's constantly that way. It's both happening, and we have to judge things. We have to figure out what was good about the past, what kind of selective nostalgia a phrase he got from Yuval Levin, and he repurposed it in a positive way with his trademark irony. We do need selective nostalgia, just like John McLean needs to be something of a cowboy, to live up to his boyhood ideals of the comic cowboy actually saving the day after all the joking is done if there's going to be comedy not the joking not the sarcasm it's gotta be getting things to a happy end and it requires some cowboying however old-fashioned that might seem but of course there are new things like women working and the new corporate world that might favor women who are smart capable and not so fussy over men who are likelier to complain, stand on their pride, take offense, and perhaps not cooperate so well. There's something good in this new world as well, and it comes with certain dangers for family, but it also comes with certain opportunities. That's, I think, what his counsel of moderation in comedy would be. We have to see that there are good things coming along, not just bad things coming along that we shouldn't take so much pleasure in inflicting cruelty to the right kind of guys, but also take some time to see that the villains or the impediments, the obstacles to happiness in the story, to just happiness, have good points to make in criticism of us in return.
1: That's right, so John McClane, the hero, I think he's the voice of what Die Hard has to say. When he is mocked by the villain as being a cowboy, he basks in that. And the movie says, it's okay to bask in that, being the cowboy. And so we like the decisions that John McClane makes, the American audience, even to today. Another decision that he just basks in is, he actually picks up the Christmas spirit a little bit himself on the 33rd floor after he kills the first terrorist. He sees an old 1950s Santa Claus and takes the hat from the Santa Claus and he puts it on the dead terrorist and he (laughs) sends that down to the terrorist's uses terror against the terrorists, using a sweatshirt that says, ho, 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 now I have a machine gun. And the audience loves that scene. It's so great. John McClane knows that he's not a perfect person, but he doesn't hate himself. He doesn't hate Santa Claus. He doesn't hate cowboy movies. He makes fun of it a bit, all this, but he still maintains it. He knows that all this is in some way necessary. The point you made about the relationship with his wife and the role of women having jobs in this new economy and that that's actually in some ways a good thing, as Peter Lala would say, things are getting better and worse all the time. There's good things in terms of the quality of men and women that that quality of treatment is still met there. But as Tocqueville says, there's a difference between treating people equally and treating everyone the same, which, of course, people aren't the same. That's Tocqueville's big message about women in democracy in America. And so part of what we get at the end of the movie between John McClane and his wife, who had been calling herself Gennaro, she goes back to embracing his old name, McClane. But she gives some and he gives some. She gives on that point And she gives up the gold watch, letting go of the gold watch, the Rolex, That actually is what ends up allowing them to triumph and kill the evil Hans Gruber. He falls off the building because she lets go of the watch in a poignant scene. At the same time, in one of the most touching of the phone conversations between Al Powell and John McClane, these phone conversations are just the key to the movie. Because Al Powell, it seems to me, that's the audience. Al is the audience John McClain's the hero, and we have the real communication between the two. Al Powell can't really do anything. He's on the outside, just like the audience is on the outside. They can't help John McClane win, but they are rooting for him. And what John McClane has to say to the audience and to Al Powell about his wife, Holly, is he should have been more understanding about his wife getting the job and that he should have supported her and shouldn't have just said, you're not going to make it, you don't have what it takes. That's not treating her the way that he should have, he admits. So both John McClane and Holly give a little bit at the end. They compromise. And it seems like the suggestion in the movies that they're going to get back together as husband and wife at the end, although we see in the next several diehard movies that it still doesn't work out. But taken by itself in the first movie, it seems like things are going to work out.
0: Yeah, I think that this is not the movie that needed or invited any kind of sequels precisely because, as you said, there are two very important moral relations at the core of this movie. Friendship and love. Friendship between men who are also both cops, and so they share a certain understanding of the duties of protection, what it means to obey and not to obey authority, what it means to risk your life for something that is not your good, but the good of somebody else. And next to friendship, of course, is the even more important concern of love.
1: It strikes me um, it's good that we're having this phone conversation between ourselves. That's the friendship that we see in a podcast. A phone podcast on Die Hard is perfect.
0: Yes. I'll <laughs> <one plane. laughs> Entirely opposite. Because we all want to be John McClane. We yeah. all want to see him win. We all wanted to see him in that triumph that some important good thing will come. To some extent it does, but the truth is that, as you say, we're actually not. John McLean. we're all Al Powell. We're yes. all Reginald Johnson. Quite moral in our well-wishing, but also feeling in a certain way powerless to do anything. We're just yes. stuck with looking at this. And partly what makes Al so intensely moral is that he has to face up to the fact that he can't do anything and he would want to act to the right, but he can't do it and so he just has to stare at the danger and i suppose this is why as an audience we lean so much into the humor including the very ugly humor now and then such as turning the santa coming down the chimney into a dead slaughter terrorist <laughs> coming down the elevator shoot it's very funny but it's also ugly but it helps us deal with the fact that we are not actually achieving or acting or doing anything we're just watching this
1: That's good too, and I think we should explore this aspect more even about Al Powell not being able to do anything, and us, the audience, not being able to do anything, but really wanting to help out. Al Powell in the movie, he's paralyzed by fear. He can't use his gun anymore because he accidentally killed a child using his gun before, and at this time, there had been several terror attacks during the Reagan years. I think there was one in Lebanon. And the approach that Reagan tried to take was we don't negotiate with terrorists. Now, that's the same approach that Diehard takes. And that's not just sitting back and having these terrorists just destroy us and we can't do anything about it. We want to get over that paralysis just as Al Powell wants to. He does want to get over it, his own guilt, but he can't get over it without the help of John McClane. Actually going through the suffering with John McClane, listening to his problems, to his own grief, we too, the audience and Al Powell, have a catharsis, a purification process. And so, to me, the climax of the movie is not when Hans Gruber falls off the building. It is actually when Al Powell is able to overcome his fear at the end of the movie. And when Al Powell and John McClane finally meet That's the high point of the movie, actually, the most emotional part. It's not even when Holly and John get back together and kiss. It's actually when John McClane and Al Powell hug as friends and having gone through hell together. That's actually the most redemptive moment in a movie. Al Powell's redemption and the audience feels redeemed in going through that. And Al Powell sees that using force can be appropriate for justice' sake and for protecting the innocent. He's able to continue with his actual job, no longer having to be a desk jockey after this. That's the beautiful part. And I wanted to just say one more thing about this. The scene where the two are talking in the phone, John McClane and Al Powell, John wishes that their two sons, Al Jr. and his son, could be uh, swinging on the jungle gym together. And that's a beautiful image. The only thing I can really think of that's similar to that from our American tradition is George Washington writing to the Hebrew congregation in Newport in a famous letter. And he says, I wish that our sons could sit together under the same vine and fig tree in peace. That image from the Bible, that image of Jewish and Christian sons sitting together in peace is similar, I think, to this image of John McClain and Al's sons on the swing set together. It's a beautiful image. The family of friends hanging out together, that does come to fruition, we think, at the end of the movie.
0: Yes, I think you're right that there is a very strong symbolism here that gets at healing the racial tensions between (coughs) black and white in America in as much as you reasonably think this could be healed. It's not the terrestrial paradise or anything like that, but it is this real possibility of friendship between men who have known danger and hope and fear together and who have in common not just this enemy in terrorism, but you can see in their conversations, in their confessing to each other their fears and their weaknesses, that they believe in the same things, that they understand justice in the same way. And for that reason, they really do belong together
1: right the blackness of al powell and the whiteness of john mcclain it's a black cop and a white cop becoming friends i think that is significant given the racial past of america and when you're a young boy black or white you don't really pay attention to race at all you don't even know that there is a big difference between race you just want to play with the other boys at the swing set and that's what we are led to believe will happen is that these two families are going to become friends too that they're all good cops
0: Yeah, and that asserts essentially that America is a pretty just society. It can't be perfect, partly because mistakes happen, partly because people don't take care of public justice enough. Just like Paul made a mistake, you can see here John McLean picking up the mistakes of many authorities of various kinds. But all of these people believe in the same vision of justice for a good reason. It's fairly sound, it's fairly serious, it's fairly successful, and it can bring people together and that does turn out to be very important because it is the only thing that the audience can really participate in. We don't get to do the John McClane things, we shouldn't really aspire to become famous or a meme like John McLean or Die Hard and in the movie Al actually is helpful. He stands up against arrogant authorities in order to try to get some help to John McLean, and he is relentless in his moral support precisely because he understands better than other people how a man could, out of self-doubt, become morally crippled, paralyzed, unmanned. So he takes it upon himself to talk John through his doubts and fears and to assure him that they're in it together and in the process has to say out loud and, and really believing and hoping that it's true all the things that he himself needs to hear. And it turns out that helps him in turn. And that's not something that you can reduce to therapy or well-wishing.
1: That's right. Danger
0: and the realization of the stakes of justice are very, very important, of course. That's why Hal is not just a emotional support character. He's a noble man who eventually has to kill somebody. The danger is real for him too. It would seem like the story is over. The good guy won, the bad guy lost. We got all the satisfaction of seeing the bad guy scared and then humiliated and killed. And he got the girl, so all of it is over. Why does this have to happen? Well, consider what happens. Hans Gruber is somebody John McLean can take down because he's a really clever guy. But John is clever too. They're clever in different ways. But in this confrontation, you can see which one comes out on top. But the man that Al has to kill is not clever, he's a brute. But he's astonishingly strong. John McLean's lowest moment in the movie is fighting this very strong guy that he thinks he dispatched, but he apparently didn't. And he reverts to bestiality. There's this threat throughout the movie. John McLean, of course, loses his clothes, is cut. But in this fight, he starts cursing and behaving like a beast. Even worse than that awful joke with the blood and the Santa and the now I got a gun thing now he's really in a fight for his life and you see how dangerous and agonizing that is and therefore you also get a sense of how important the moral support that Al provides is it makes the difference between becoming a monster and becoming a hero
1: this is true but... he says i'm gonna cut you and eat you cannibalism and... exactly and he also because, says that's
0: how seriously he takes the matter and he knows how hopeless it is and that's why might, what might tempt a man to become a monster
1: now, I know we shouldn't, on your podcast, I don't know if we can cuss or not, but cussing is a big free. part of this movie, too. I mean, in immediate response to the terrorists, his response is, yippee ki motherfucker. And that is a big line in the movie. But, you know, you're right. Al Powell does, in some ways, help John McClane not become so passionate in his cursing, and it is becoming almost like a beast, that he loses his head. And so, for example, Al Powell, after John McClane gets shot at by the police themselves, Al says, how are you feeling? He says, pretty fucking unappreciated. Now, that's a great line, too. And (laughs) so many Americans feel that so often. Pretty fucking unappreciated. Yes, indeed. But Al Powell says, you know what? I love you. And a lot of the other guys down here love you, too. And so that really does help John McClane to have that support of the audience, to have that support of Al it does keep him from going off the rails <laughs> yeah it's a
0: very important thing it's hard to overstate what it means that john McClane bears the burden of being american he is not a superhero he does not have superpowers he's a small guy before die hard nobody thought of bruce willis as an action hero he did silly romances comedies that sort of thing Then now we look at him in this sort of minified, ironic way as the indestructible, badass American. But even in this incarnation, he's still an everyman. He's not that tall, he's not that strong. He doesn't have speed or martial arts or some kind of infallible marksman accuracy. He's, to a large extent, one of us, and therefore he's alone. Feeling appreciated could take everything from him because the odds are against
1: him. It is significant he's a cop from New York. Not from L.A., from New York. This is a part of the country that was being left behind. You know, his wife leaves him behind for California. And he says, I'm still having to go back to get these scumbags in New York, still all the way back there. And so that's another aspect, I think, of John McClane's character that people like.
0: Yeah, very true. He is working class through and through. And therefore, he's also a good way to test America. Is there enough virtue in these people that are everyday people that in the crunch, they will come through? I think to some extent we realize that this is really a question, that this could go the other way, however assured we are of happy ends. And I think this is the point of this brute emerging, still alive if agonized at the end when Sergeant Al actually has to kill him. Good speeches, good intentions, being supportive and therapeutic is not going to cut it. At some point you have to kill somebody and that is just a shocking moment. This moral man now has to kill again and that is the price you pay for nobility.
1: This is a fact repeated by our friend Peter Lawler many times is that, especially with the Clint Eastwood movies recently, bringing out this fact that you you do need some tough guys in your culture who are very simple but know what the right thing to do is and do it. And we always rely on our soldiers, on our cops. And unfortunately, sometimes they're just taken for granted or in the worst case, spat upon by citizens who rely on them. And so that's another aspect of this is praising the cops. And in terms of the simplicity of John McClane, another aspect is that, you know, even when the villain calls him Mr. McClane, says, you know, Sister Marie used to call me Mr. McClane. You know, I'm, they, my real name is John, you know, very much just the blue collar approach, nicknames or surname. And that's the only name. But when Hans Gruber learns the name, that is a turning point in the movie. Something is lost. It's a blow to the good guys. Once the bad guys learn John McClane's real name, just as in the Odyssey, when Odysseus gives up his name, he does give up some power And that in the ancient world, the name had that was what was so unfortunate about Ellis, the corporate bag, giving up John McClane's name.
0: Yeah, you're right. And, and of course, we always know this. Since the age of the action movie, since Die Hard, this rare great achievement, we got really used to all sorts of insane violence, political terrorism, terrorism that's more insane than political, but still, it shocks us. First thing we want to know is who did this? We want to put a name to this thing. We want to put a motive. We want to understand somehow why is, is this chaos opening up in front of us. Why should these innocent people all of a sudden be murdered? It's terrifying. So it makes a lot of sense that John McClane can terrify the terrorists instead. And then he is in a way betrayed by revealing his name by a negotiator slash cokehead. The perfect image of the 80s Wall Street Trader, the kind of guy Tom Wolfe satirized as masters of the universe. People of no personal virtue who make a pride of taking extreme gambles as the movie reveals, as the Tom Wolfe novels reveal, with somebody else's life. Never putting anything personal on the line. It's not that they are immortal, it's that they die surprised.
1: Also very California, unfortunately.
0: Indeed. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Speaking of the villains and the characters we don't admire so much in Die Hard, the question I had for you was, as a European, do you feel triggered by the fact that most of the bad guys in Die Hard are European?
0: (laughs) Well, there are certain aspects of Die Hard that make sense with the times. There's a Japanese corporation and there's this German terrorism. These are facts of the 80s and the 70s. They'd be on international news. They were real problems to an extent and there were certain images of the weakness of America that was supposed to be encroached upon by West Germany and Japan, these new economic powerhouses. And indeed, that did mean uh, a lot of economic competition. That did mean a lot of problems for, say, union workers in Detroit in the big three. It was a real problem, just like it was very real advances in all sorts of technological and economic fields. And so I think partly the movie is trying to get at that, but partly I think it gets at something else. The Japanese corporation is portrayed as honorable.
1: It's the fact that Hans Gruber brings up that Mr. Nakatomi is a former Nisei. Someone who was sent to the Japanese internment camps during World War II, they just throw that in. But that's just one of those facts that you hear and then you really start thinking through, is there some kind of other motivation here with the terrorists? Because they're mentioning that and other things like that. But as we learned, they really are just motivated by money. They're not neo-Nazis or something like that. Oh, certainly not.
0: They have but- none of these political motivations. But I think they're not just motivated by money. Unlike the Japanese guy who is honorable and who has Americanized to an incredible extent, as you mentioned, that in a certain way he is American, despite having suffered quite a lot of humiliation and possibly injustice, though it was a strange moment of war, the internment of the Japanese after Pearl Harbor. So the Japanese man honorably dies. He feels it. he can't do what these people want. But aside from that, he's neither a conniver nor a coward like others are. So that's an honorable moment.
1: Small scene I noticed in the movie just this past viewing. And I watch this every year, by the way. I am one of the... <laughs> <head>. <laughs> that's but, patriotism. Uh, I noticed this time that the computer hacker for the terrorists and the big brutish terrorist, they have, a, I guess, a $100 bet on whether Nakatomi will crack or not. And the brute bets that he will. He'll give in. He's motivated by money. The computer hacker, who maybe he knows about Japanese culture because he's into computers, he bets that he won't give in and that Hans will have to shoot him. And he was right. He said, I told you so, he wins the bet. And I, I just hadn't even paid attention to that board.
0: Yeah, it's a very good point. He's an honorable man. You shouldn't underestimate him. Just because he's weak doesn't make him a coward. And it doesn't mean you can bully him. And of course, on the other side of the door is John McLean, looking at this with a gun in his hand. Talking to himself, (laughs) saying, Why don't you do anything, John? Because you'll end up dead, asshole. (laughs) And, And there you see, this is a man who has to face his fear. Like the Japanese executive had to face fear. So also John had to face fear. And both of them acted according to their conception of their duty. And so you can see that the Japanese are not so out of place in America. On the other hand, the Europeans are in a very different situation. They're, of course, the ancient enemy of America, aristocracy, the claim of rule by inequality. And in a way, it is about money, but in a way, it's not. It's about two things. One of them is taste, and one of them is cleverness. Hans Gruber is proud of his taste. is lovely. Indeed, indeed. And he follows things. He follows the aesthetics of business. He is impressed with impressive things, from suits to designs for all sorts of architectural projects and however many things in between.
1: Benefits of a classical education.
0: Indeed. And there you go, you see, what was once the prize of aristocracy. What does classical education teach him? It teaches him that the men of superior taste and of superior intelligence should tyrannize and terrorize. Now, admittedly, in this new world, He can't nakedly appear as what he wants to be, a tyrant claiming superiority. But he, on the other hand, very rationally tries to prove his point by suckering everybody. If he can lie to everybody, then they are as stupid as he says they are. If he can win, that is to say, he is not simply getting the money. He is not simply greedy. He is also proving that the superior wins over the inferior despite all the money and the power and the confidence Americans have that's part of the more disturbing thing that goes on in the movie and director john mctiernan encourages this to a considerable extent i mean when they finally get into the vault hans gruber has this moment when beethoven's Ode to Joy is played out in full bombast which had been worked in the scoring of the film again and again up until that teased as it were it's the hans
1: most gruber. european song hans gruber hums it himself at certain points too
0: indeed exactly This is his moment of triumph. He has managed to get to the money. turns out that he can't get away with it, but he got close. He did prove to a significant extent, therefore, that he does understand American weaknesses and therefore can borrow his way through America's defenses and ultimately question the American project.
1: He could count on the bureaucracy of America, but he couldn't count that there would be a John McClane.
0: That is a very good point. That this is all about rational control and how predictable people become you can understand how predictable corporations become how predictable the fbi becomes and they help you inadvertently in your grandmaster's camp you can count on the politics of america you can count on the liberal press to swallow these stupid transparently insane claims about political terrorism and solidarity with this asian dawn group northern ireland or palestinian in short all the terrorists that the left loves yeah. And this is part of the strong criticism—a kind of small C conservative, capital A American criticism of liberals who think that some terrorists are okay.
1: You know about Arafat? Yeah, he gets his suits from the same yeah. suit maker in it London, a, right? And it's true.
0: Arafat was a terrorist and the leader of the Palestinians. Also, a dandy of a kind, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay, so. The point about prediction and the hope of Hans Gruber triumphing using his aristocratic genius, predicting, knowing what the bureaucrats and the elites of America will do, the FBI playbook, there is a certain slavishness in all that bureaucracy. And there's a theme going back to ancient Greece throughout all Western civilization about the fighting spirit of a free person versus the fighting spirit of a slave. Free people have more to fight for than a slave does. And so you see this, you know, with the Persians versus the Athenians. You see this even all the way to one of Ronald Reagan's speeches, his first inaugural I was re- reading recently. In that first inaugural, Reagan talks about the fact that free people have a lethal weapon. I think he even uses the phrase lethal weapon, which calls to mind another great series of uh, <laughs> shoot-em-ups in the 80s. But the lethal weapon is that we're free people, that the terrorists, and I would think also he might put in the category the communists, don't have the same motivations as a free people. And part of the reason that the Spartans are always attacking other people and are so aggressive is to distract their own people from their lack of freedom. That's part of the aggression. That's an important theme that I think fits in Die Hard.
0: Oh, I think you're perfectly right that in a way this gets to the core conflict in the movie. As I said, as a European, I find it much easier to look at it as an aristocracy versus democracy, old world versus new world kind of conflict. But I think that that is in this grander way, as you say, with the requirement of politics, of freedom, that is to say you're going to have to fight for something. Yeah. And it starts with a sense of pride or dignity or shame that gets a smaller man to fight a bigger
1: man. McLean knows he has a lot to lose his family. And he's got a lot worth fighting for. The bad guys, I mean, they have yeah these romantic visions of getting all this money, uh, sitting on the beach, collecting 20%, just being these evil geniuses. But, you know, when one of them gets killed, the brother of the brute, I can't remember the terrorist name, you know, the thieves, as thieves always have, they are willing to risk their lives for something like this. But it's not for something good. It's for something ill-gotten good. What's motivating them is very different than what motivates McClane. Yeah,
0: he wants to protect people. There's a kind of agreement there that there's a difference between people who are willing to kill and people who are not. But there's also this claim that all people who are willing to kill are not the same, since whom they want to kill and for what reason counts a lot. Because people have to explain themselves to themselves and to each other, and they have to figure out what's right and what's good. In the case of mclean it's the easiest way americans have of pointing this out which is having an underdog story somebody who's willing to fight against the odds because in that case success the happy end cannot be reduced to being mercenary it would have always been easier not to fight at all and that of course is a temptation If you watch this with a bit of distance, as we must have when we take this kind of philosophical perspective on what the requirements of political freedom have always been in sacrifice, doing the noble thing, even if you're pretty sure it's going to fail, then you do see that most of these Americans do obey people they shouldn't be obeying and are almost led like sheep to the slaughter
1: that's the sad part you know when they follow the fbi playbook and shut down the power those uh, electric guys they get a phone call and they say okay now we got to shut it down shut it down and that's exactly what the bad guys were counting on and the fbi they who's in charge here not anymore we're in charge and the stupid cops the cop who's interfering always with john mcclain he just backs down to the fbi and that's the way the bureaucracy in the deep state works
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's part of the point of the movie about rational and predictable behavior. There's a difference between everyday Americans and elite Americans. Elite Americans are uniformly condemned. The academic who tries to explain therapeutically evil away. The press that does all sorts of wicked things up to and including endangering a family and threatening people with deportation just for the ratings. To put another human interest story out there, the scummiest side of journalism, which was way truer of journalism than people would like to admit or would have liked up until recently. We're all hating journalism these days.
1: The only better send up of media sleaziness in the 80s is in Batman. In Batman, the original one with Michael Keaton, the Joker has put laughing poison in the makeup. And so the media cannot put on their makeup and they're, they look like trash on TV. <laughs> and it's a great moment. Yeah,
0: that's a very good yeah. point. It's, it's a show, it's a shambles, and it tries to lie to people that some experts here are gonna tell you how to live your life. All of these elite institutions up to, and including of course, the corporate cokehead trader, we already mentioned, who turns out to be a traitor too. All of these people have the arrogance of elites and do not have any personal responsibility. they would never risk something of their own for the sake of somebody else. And that seems to be the problem there. And so then this becomes a question about who's really going to own America. Is it going to be the elites that run the show, that sit atop the society, or is it going to be regular Americans? And there, as I said, you see that some of them obey. Some of them, even if they do obey, like John McLean's wife Holly, are defiant and want to take risks on behalf of somebody else. To help the lady who's pregnant and needs to rest somewhere, to help people who just need to be managed, at least to get to the toilets now and then. And she will stand up for them and for herself. And there you see, in a way, she fits with John McLean. Part of egalitarianism is this attitude that both men and women will be stronger, more self-assertive, more defiant. And that's one of the things that you would want to have in America. It's a virtue of the everyday American that you apparently can't see among elites. I believe this is one of many points on which the movie was prophetic. The selection for conformism in American elites is the catastrophe of our times.
1: And there's an interesting connection with the other main Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, although it's far more sophisticated in all the different types of elites that are being talked about. It's not just Mr. Potter, the one rich guy who is an elite asshole. <laughs> um, there's all sorts of elites who are really bad for America, just don't care about the average Americans in Die Hard. And you see the full panoply with parts of the police, The FBI, the media, just all over the place, and of course, big business. There's a connection with that earlier theme um, from the great director of those earlier movies, Frank Capra. Maybe a development and a sophistication of it in Die Hard that you don't see in the earlier movie.
0: I think you're right, these are certainly connected, they're all very Americanist, they're all very populist and all of them say that we have to insist on the distinction between elites and the people because the elites might become corrupt and arrogant and we shouldn't let the people be corrupted by them as well, they shouldn't be corrupted into submission, into obedience, they should stand on their American dignity. That's partly a citizenship. That's partly the importance of one's own things. You know, whatever the orders are, you should take more care of your family than of being a conformist. All these sorts of things have to come together and they do come together in this pair of Holly and John McClane, but also in his friendship with Al and uh, at the lower level, but in connection with that, his friendship with Argyle, the rap-loving younger black guy of the new generation who thinks Christmas is a kind of a rap season
1: Run DMC, this in Harlem, a great, great song. And I'm so glad that they included him in there. And he stands up and punches a terrorist too. Wonderful yep. scene, wonderful scene.
0: <laughs> and uh, there, I mean, he's, he's a black guy in LA, but you know, he identifies more with Christmas in Harlem than he would with all sorts of older classics. It's not his experience, but it turns out that he has very similar American ideas, not just the sort of defiant standing up for yourself and punching somebody if he's a terrorist, but also, of course, he's a limo driver and he immediately sizes John up. And he can because he's an American and he speaks his mind, but it's also because John's also an American, so he doesn't ride in the back. That's an aristocratic European thing to do. A Democrat will ride in front with the driver and making small talk. John admits that this young black man is quite sharp and has figured out what the problem is, and he's not too proud to admit that he has to change how he treats his wife in that case, that he's looking for a second chance. Despite the, the sort of international elite send-up, you get a limo at the airport waiting for you. He's not actually coming in a limo. He's coming sort of to beg for a second chance. So he's a captain, and he's willing right? to admit that. Mm-hmm. And indeed, they have an immediate rapport, partly because they're, they're just Americans. They're just Democrats. They can talk about troubles they're going through americans are friendly they don't have the sophistication of alan rickman but they have this other sort of attitude like the man on the plane who looks at john and tells him you know what you should just make fists with your toes just take (laughs) off your shoes and this will really help why the hell would that help but you know maybe it does but the point is that he's just willing to offer this sort of friendly helpful advice you know you can go 3000 miles by plane and you recognize the people there they're americans just like you Now, of course, they're Californians, so John McClane sees a lot of weird things even at Christmas because this is L.A., it's a very weird place. But they're still American, and so he can instantly make friends with Argyle and get some advice from him and step on his pride a little. These sorts of things in the movie show you an insistence that's a tad sentimental, but that's perfectly fit for Christmas. And on the other hand, he is deeply serious about the fact that ordinary Americans might have certain abilities elite Americans will not. One of them is they're much more willing to deal with ugliness and to deal in violence. And they understand that that's somehow connected with being a man. That's somehow connected with justice.
1: Even in LA, as Chris Flanders would say. Indeed. Now, I think these points are excellent about the aristocratic versus the democratic. And I think they show us in American cinema and just in American storytelling, what makes for a good good guy and what makes for a good bad guy. You know, there's so many complaints now, just among kids that I teach, and also, you know, my friends and myself. We say, you know, this movie was a good movie, this action movie, but it didn't have a good villain. So often, people don't really know what makes for a good villain, and it's that aristocratic element. At least for Americans, it's always got to have that aristocratic element in it.
0: True. I mean, part of it is a political matter. It's in the Constitution we were not allowed to take titles from any aristocratic regime around the world. You can be a citizen and you have to be a citizen and that's it. No more and no less and everybody's included in that. And of course it turns out that there's a lot of heroism just in defending equality. There are always dangers, and so what's so great about aristocratic villains is that they point to two things. One of them is that Americans are just in love with people more
1: sophisticated
0: than themselves, whether it's something exotic (laughs) or indeed a British
1: accent. Actually has a British accent, but he does a German accent on top of it in this movie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And that was his movie debut, Alan Rickman, great English actor, recently passed. Then this attraction to beauty, to sophistication, to the manners, suggests the fear embedded in equality that I'll never get the attention, I'll never become famous, nobody will pay attention to me, nobody will take me seriously. And therefore the need for what we call celebrity, like why Americans even today are obsessed with the antiques of the British royal family, which is not, you know, of particular importance. And then there is another thing, is that aristocrats do have sometimes a superiority to Americans in respect of, as we said, the classical education. Why is Hans Gruber such a good judge of how corrupt American elites are? How does he see straight through them and treats them with such expert contempt that lays bare their weaknesses? It's because Americans believe in generalities. Americans are forever pronouncing principles, whatever they do. Whereas this corrupt guy would not do that. He would pay attention and look for people's weaknesses. It's the wisdom of malice and even of contempt, you could say, that allows him to exploit people. But that aristocratic posture that's so attractive in villains is also beset by an eternal flaw, which is the stupidity that attends on contempt. You can't take seriously people you have too much contempt for. Just like he has too much contempt for cowboys, he has too much contempt for John McClane since he doesn't fit in his picture of americans obeying like sheep their authorities he will not be taken seriously but of course americans are not merely obedient americans have a first amendment because they yap the mouth interminably and a lot of it is like the american press crazy and bad but it does stir people's political passions their freedom their equality their democracy their americanism and they have a second amendment and now and then use those guns often perhaps to bad purposes but most often to good purposes and so these are the sorts of things that the bad guy doesn't understand but these are the same things that the elites don't understand hans gruber is nothing but an idealization of american elites and you know that involves ultimately this question on whom does the constitution rest on the people or the elites how does america stay america And the movie did then, in a way which is impossible now, affirm resoundingly that America rests on the people for their many flaws and silliness, why they're such a good object of comedy. They also have a need of comedy, which is they can get really ugly and start killing people. And both of those are requirements of political freedom. They're not that sophisticated. They're not that technological or scientific or going to make you rich and famous. But turns out that freedom rests on them.
1: Well, Titus, I think we have successfully shown why Die Hard is a great American Christmas movie. It's a story of we had to sum it up an unexpected savior. Just, just <laughs> as we very well put. Unexpected is- savior coming in Bethlehem cave coming up this Christmas, and so I want to thank you, Titus, for this conversation and really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks a lot for joining me, Chris. We'll have to find some other thing and talk again after Christmas. Thank you for putting this idea in my head. It hadn't occurred to me to think about the movie in terms of redeeming Sergeant Al, redeeming Detective John McLean, redeeming indeed America in a certain way. But I think you're exactly right. And so I'm very grateful for this idea and for the conversation. And Merry Christmas until then. Merry Christmas, All the best. Ciao. Sure.